Welcome to the Brazilians Podcast, Episode 2 with Dr. Richard Diston. I'm your host, Joe Saunders. This episode is brought to you by R2S Security, the specialized security and risk division of the Risk to Solution Group. R2S Security has been delivering a wide range of security and risk-related solutions for over 15 years. R2S Security boasts a broad base of clients and has successfully delivered hundreds of audits and assessments on a diverse portfolio of assets, people, and operations, along with training projects for all levels of government, as well as small, medium, and large enterprise. If you have a security need, R2S Security have a solution. To find out more, please visit R2S Security online at www.risk2solution.com. That's www.risk2solution.com. Ladies and gentlemen, today I am joined by Dr. Richard Diston. Dr. Richard Diston has been a security and risk professional for over 20 years and has served clients in the UK government, corporate security, retail, education, care, finance, and charity sectors. He has a variety of experience and expertise, including physical security, information security, personnel security, security guarding, risk and governance, audit, risk audit, workplace violence, security training and assessment, security culture, risk assessment, and physical penetration testing. He holds a master's in security management as well as a professional doctorate in security risk management from the University of Portsmouth. Today, it is my great honor to be joined by Dr. Richard Diston. Dr. Richard Diston, thank you for joining us on the Presilience podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for having me. So Richard, uh, for, for listeners that may not be aware of who you are, would you mind just uh, quickly introducing yourself and uh, talking a little bit about your background? Yeah, sure. Um, I am a, a security risk management consultant. Um, I am a doctor of security risk. Um, I've been doing this for, seems like forever now. Um, I initially started working in the physical security realm and I then, because I have something of an IT background as well, I moved across into information security. Um, I also have uh, significant experience in the management of violence um, and workplace kind of insider threat, corporate culture type stuff, which is what my doctorate was kind of based on. Yeah, excellent. So you've, uh, you've actually worked across quite a spectrum of, of different risk specialties. Um, Despite having your PhD in violence, you've got a fairly broad, uh, a broad base of knowledge there with security and cyber as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm, um, I'm one of those guys that I, I, I believe that security should be approached holistically. There's no such thing as cyber security. There's no such thing as infrastructure. There is just security. Um, and I think that there are far too many silos in the organizations and in the sector anyway. Um, for clarity, when I, if I use the terminology cyber, I'm talking about the technologists. I'm talking about the guys who will fix your firewall and write your code. Um, I consider myself an infosec guy if, if we're going to kind of go down that route. Um, but I am a security risk guy primarily. So it's, it's quite an interesting area of conversation that's happened uh, just recently with, uh, with myself and a number of colleagues and, and clients is talking about the evolution of the security field and, and how it's been uh, sort of a, a incorporated within a broader risk management framework, which realistically is where it always should have been. Uh, but, but also where physical security intersects with, uh, with cyber or, or, or infosec 
and uh, and whether there's a need for you know, your your chief security officers to also be cyber security officers or, or uh, technology officers, and, uh, and and really how that works together, it's it's quite an interesting evolution we're in at the moment. It, it certainly is, and I think um, I'm not sure where the leadership in the industry is coming from. I think organisations are making it up as they go along. Um, and if you've got a particular individual with a particular skill set, he'll take a, a job title or a position. And then everyone else will look at that and think, oh, well, we need to do that. Um, so I think it's happening organically rather than any design. Um, we talk about secure by design a lot in everything apart from our industry. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's completely true. And, and I think always um, yeah, when, it, when it comes to anything security related, it's always going to be driven by budget and budget's always going to be driven by what's, what's urgent and what's topical at the moment. And uh, I think we're seeing a, a shift towards the cyber and infosec because the, the potential risks in, in terms of cyber breaches and, uh, and infosec breaches, uh, <laughs> they're, they're a lot scarier <laughs> for, for, the, for the board than, uh, than potentially having yeah, yeah, physical security breaches. So uh, yeah. I don't think anyone cares. Um, <laughs> bold statement for you. Um, I, if you look at organizations that have suffered a major breach, go back, I don't know, five, 10 years, you can see that within, within a year, their share price is trading higher than it was before the breach. The world has a very short memory. And ultimately, it, it's, I think it's almost viewed like a victimless crime. Um, so organizations keep doing what they're doing. Um, and this leads to a problem of likelihood, which is one of the reasons why I feel that risk management is broken fundamentally. Um, but th there's a lot to unpick there, I think. <laughs> well, let's, let's go down that rabbit hole then. <laughs> let's, 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 let's get your viewpoint on that. I mean, uh, you, you know, you're a, you're, a, you're a PhD. You've been in this world for, for a long time. And uh, to, to be fair, the, the UK is... Uh, it's, uh, from my perspective here in humble old Australia, I think the UK is, is usually a couple of years ahead of where we are at the moment. Uh, so mm. I'd be interested to get your, your insight into, into how you see risk management as being sort of fundamentally broken or, or more to the point, we can all sit around and kind of whinge about things that are broken, but where do you see it heading or how, where does it need to head? Um, I'm glad that you've, I'm glad that you've gone, you asked that question. Um, right. I think it's fundamentally broken because the, um, <laughs> The formula that is typically applied, you know, that likelihood um, multiplied by impact equals risk. Um, there's so much missing from that formula, primarily. Um, context would be one thing. Um, and the, the concept that, I mean, I've heard that referred to as the Disney equation by a Scottish fellow that I used to know on account of it, Disney work. <laughs> yeah, the, the old um, five by fives are leave a little That's it. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> leave a little bit to be desired when it comes to holistic risk management. I'd like to think we've all moved past that, but yeah, that, that would be nice. When we talk to people, level. It, it's still such in wide usage. When you talk to people about why they use it, it's either because it's the only tool they know how to use, or it's something that the board will understand. And with the best will in the world, I'd suggest that it's the board's job. It's a risk management is a part of governance. And I've, I've seen it too many times where the board will get a paragraph that they will skim read on a 200 page report. And that's not enough to give them what the, the information they need to make governance based decisions. So is there laziness at board level regarding this kind of stuff? Quite possibly. 
that's an interesting point, isn't it? I mean, we we uh, we all know risk managers that are brilliant at what they do, but also quite poor at being able to articulate what they do. And uh, and I think that that communication gap of how do we actually talk about what we do and how do we explain it to people that aren't specialists that have no interest in becoming specialists and just want actionable advice uh, and also to take the credit for it. Well, I think yeah, I think the first thing that we need to do is we need to abolish the likelihood. Um, you know, if I came into your boardroom in a big onion hat with a jewel in the middle and a cloak covered in stars and moons, and I started chucking runes on the desk or chicken bones in a dish, you'd throw me out. I'd probably that's keep you, but that's, that's me personally. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, I need to come and visit you. <laughs> but that's what, you know, it, it's 21st century fortune telling. You know, likelihood, it's a finger in the air. We need to be looking at more than that. My particular opinion, I've been working on something for probably the last 10 years now, um, a, a different model of approaching this that eliminates the need for likelihood entirely, contextually based. And I'm, I'm, more, I'm not interested in what could happen. I'm interested in the enterprise. You know, there is an asteroid that is traveling through time and space right now with our name on it, whether we're talking about us as an organization, us as individuals, us as a society. There are asteroids with our name on them heading our way. What can happen eventually will happen. And the concept of likelihood and rolling the dice and saying, well, we'll be okay. No, no, no. I want to know that when that asteroid shows up, we've done what we need to do to make sure that it burns up or bounces off. And if it's big enough that it doesn't do that, well, there's nothing we could have done about it. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, actually. That, that's kind of the whole concept of resilience that we talk about is, uh, you know, it's not enough to say, well, these bad things are going to happen and we'll just bounce back from them and we'll, we'll make sure that we're resilient. It's, it's what, what are we going to do in the meantime to make sure that we minimize that impact before it happens or, or hopefully prevent it from happening in the first place? Well, it, it, it's interesting that when, I think there's a language issue. Um, when, we, when we as practitioners talk to uh, lay people, let's say, when we say probability, they typically hear the word probably. Now, when I talk to my wife, you know, are we going to have steak for dinner? Probably. Well, I take that as a yes. They hear us talk about probability. They hear probably, and it's a promise. They think it's going to show up. And when it doesn't, we lose credibility through no fault of our own. Um, when we talk about, you know, is something likely? Again, people think that likelihood, if we say something is likely, it's more or less going to happen. And it, it, it's a problem with the language that we need to move away from. We need to move away from... Monte Carlo simulations. You know what? Um, we could talk about that for a moment. I've, why aren't these people winning the lottery? If they think that you can predict the future, which nobody can, but you can predict a likely future by using maths, um, you know, I, I want to see where all these millionaires are hanging out. If, if we take, take a step further, if, if, I said, if I asked one of these guys, bear in mind that security is a people problem. It's a problem not for organizations as much as a problem of organization. And that's about people. So if I took a, a risk manager who was particularly keen on you know, numerical, you know, mathematical models, and I asked him to run a Monte Carlo simulation on whether or not I was going to smash him in the face, well, the numbers aren't really going to help him, and they're certainly not going to help him eat steak into the future. <laughs> It doesn't help us. It's not useful to know that something, oh, well, we, we predicted that was going to happen. Well, congratulations. We need to do something more proactive. So how do you see that evolving? Where, where does it need to go and how does it need to get there? I think we need to, we need to break our addiction on 
the current levels of thinking. I did this um, maybe about, it must be about 10 years ago now, I think. I gave a presentation at a university on the global failure of security risk management as a function. Um, I spoke for about an hour um, and I presented uh, an early concept of the, the fragility stuff that I've been working on. Um, and at the end of the, uh, literally at the end of that hour, you'd have thought I'd been stood up there on stage punching kittens. It was silence. <laughs> And, you know, the, my contact at the university said that for the rest of the month, he was getting emails. What did he mean by that? What did he mean by this? And this was just a bunch of people. I challenged them because this is what some of them have been doing. This is a career for 40 years. They hadn't thought about it. They'd just gone through the motions. Um, and when I challenged them on it, it's a very difficult thing to have done something professionally for 40 years and then have some and realize that maybe you aren't the expert in this area. Um, so I, I do recognize some of the challenges that presents, but I think we need to break our addiction to old school thinking and start looking at new methods of thinking and discussing this stuff in ways that have value for our organizations. That's an interesting topic about, about having value. I, I think that's always been uh, the challenge uh, for, for risk and certainly for security is, uh, is demonstrating value, especially if there wasn't a pronounced or a quantified problem before, um, say, a security program was introduced. Uh, a very effective security program tends to generate not a lot of reportable incidents. Uh, <laughs> how, do you, how do you put a value on what you prevented? I'll, I'll, I'll throw, I've, I've been thinking about this recently, actually, and I'm, I'm kind of writing a piece about it myself. Um, what do we sell? When somebody engages a security risk consultant, what am I selling? Um, well, let's break it down. Security officers sell their time, their paid hourly. Security managers sell their experience. They are um, they're paid a salary for the time that they've spent and knowing how things work. What do we sell? We sell expertise. We sell access to security acumen. Now, they can't measure it, they can't feel it, they can't know it. And it, I, the, one of the biggest challenges I think that we face as a sector is that we have to educate our clients, which is very, very difficult. You know, they don't know what they're buying. They don't know what good looks like. So if we're looking for a good metric, it's not the number of security incidents or number of policy breaches. That's not useful to us. I think it might be worth opening a broader conversation around what we sell. For me, what we sell is confidence we sell the, the, the confidence that if the organization follows our advice, their plans will not be disrupted by the actions of others, whether accidentally or deliberately. Um, and so if we find a way of measuring this, the level of security confidence in the organization and then correcting for overconfidence, because organizations think they're fine until something happens, I think that you know, obviously it takes uh, more minds than mine to actually open the conversation and discuss it and think, well, how can we actually demonstrate value in a more meaningful way than just number of incidents? Yeah, that's actually a really good point. And uh, I do think it's the it's a shift that needs to happen within the security consulting world. And I think it is happening. Uh, there, there's a company in the US, uh, AS Solution, an uh, executive protection organization. And uh, I mean, you talk about a, a field that has some pretty high um, I guess cost to to companies to to employ protection for their for their executives, uh, but their model has shifted away from we'll stop bad things from happening to uh, we will help keep your key personnel happy, safe, and productive. And their whole model of service is around ensuring that 
you know, their executives or their, you know, their CEOs, whoever it is, uh, are able to be themselves at their absolute best with minimum distractions, whether that's getting transfers, whether it's making sure their baggage arrives, whether it's making sure that they're safe and uninterrupted by traffic. Uh, and that's the role that AI Solution fits, not you know, car chases and gunfights. Absolutely. And I think that that evolution needs to happen in kind of the broader industry as well. I mean, the fact that if we're selling confidence, bear in mind, selling confidence is also what confidence tricksters do. So there's that. But it's, it's this idea that value, we talk about security cultures, the security awareness. Organizations do not want security awareness. You know, I'm aware of the speed limit. It doesn't mean I drive to it. Although I clearly do, I have to state that soon as this is going public. But it's the um, if we look at the concept of um, security awareness, they want a secure they want a secure production culture. The mission of the organisation is to produce value. No, the pro- produce protected value, which is where we come in, as opposed to just making sure that you are secure. And I don't know what that means. A lot of organisations are also functioning on compliance. Um, and there is that balance between compliance and complacence. Um, we've got 27,001. We must be secure. No, nah, not really. Um, so again, it's a matter of perception. And I know organizations that, you know, at the start of a consulting engagement, typically I'll have a conversation with the client and say, okay, you, you've, you've got me in to talk about 27,001. Why do you want it? And invariably it's not because they want to become more secure. They've got business that they've got to chase or they've got a, so some regulatory requirement that they've got to meet or it's, it's not, no, they, they don't want to be more secure. Um, we are still in the 21st century, a grudge purchase. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a really good point. Uh, and, and I think uh, here in Australia, we're very much a compliance driven culture corporately. I think it is changing in pockets. Uh, I, I do think there's, there are more and more smaller and mid-sized organizations that are, that are truly going after excellence, but, Largely speaking, most purchases in, in security and risk are compliance driven. Uh, and if you happen to be on the fringe where there's not a lot of um, yeah, compliance requirements, then not a lot of money gets spent. No, exactly. And if we're going um, I'm, I'm, I'm to, since we talked about fortune telling, I'm going I'm to whip out my crystal ball here. I'm going I'm to talk for a minute about the future of what we do. Okay. Um, and I'll go make a coffee. <laughs> If we think about this in this way, whose job is security in the enterprise? Whose responsibility is it? It ain't ours. If the security department is responsible for security risk, it will never, ever work. The future, if we look at a separate industry from it, if we look at project management, it used to be that there were people whose job it was to be a project manager. And then what happened is over time, that evolved into an area where you've got pr- practitioners and professionals in other areas taking Prince 2 and Agile and all the other kind of courses so they could manage their own projects. Security risk is the responsibility of the business units. And so I think that, you know, if we do our job really, really well, we should cease to exist because the HR professional, the um, the finance people, they're going to be secure. They're going to have that security string to their bow as well as what they do. I definitely think that's the way we have to move forward. Uh, and, I, and I think it, I agree with you. I think your, your crystal ball is, is exactly accurate. Um, the time frame of achieving that is, is the question mark. 
But I, I do think that's the way we have to head. We need to be making sure that everybody in a responsible role. I mean, look, every, every personnel, every staff member in every capacity needs to have some sort of security awareness or a security skill set um, to be able to play their part. But uh, certainly management level and above need to be able to uh, have good security sense and, and know, how to, know how to use those tools. Absolutely. And I would think that, you know, in, in terms of the future for us as practitioners, um, the example that I give is you own a car. Now, you have a legal responsibility to make sure that that car is, you know, taxed, licensed, roadworthy, all that stuff. Now, you might not be very good with a wrench. So you'll hire practitioners who are good with a wrench and they will help you meet your legal, moral, ethical, whatever obligations security needs to be the same way we're the guys in the organization we don't say no to things it's not our job to say no it's our job to say you know what here's the risks do you accept them and if they say no say great well how can we help you make sure that you can that's our job and this gets over you know normally when i go into organizations and i see these situations where security has a combative relationship or a is negatively perceived it's because security are being given the responsibility for something that they can't own you know security says no to something if it's security's ass on the line yeah that's exactly right and i, and I do think sometimes that that as you said, it drives a wedge between the security division and everyone else. And, and unfortunately, the, the long-term ramification of that is that security start, the security department, rather, uh, whether, yeah, I'm not talking necessarily about guards, but, but the, the whole security uh, <laughs> function of the, of the organization starts to become divorced from the overall purpose of the business. Uh, and therefore, the, the recommendations that come out of the security division can sometimes be less and less uh, yeah, useful <laughs> because, they're, exactly. because they're, they've lost touch with what the culture of the organization is supposed to be. And what the purpose we're, selling, we're selling on points of security doctrine. This is the way things should be done rather than what the business actually wants or needs. But it's interesting that you said that. I'm glad, I'm glad that you've, you've mentioned something. For security to work, and we, we see in all the certifications in the CISM and the C-RISC and all the ISACA stuff and all the CIS stuff, that this, this phrase is trotted out regularly, the alignment with the business mission. Well, get ready. How, I, I don't know many practitioners who know what the hell the business strategy is because it isn't shared. Either it doesn't get down as far as us in the organizational structure or they just they're just doing business and the, the strategy is to hit X as a financial figure. Um, so consequently, if we don't know where the business wants to be in three years, we can't work out how to secure that journey and that future state because we simply don't know where it's going. So we remain reactive. It's, a, it's an interesting challenge um, here in Australia. Certainly from my experience, I've found that uh, it depends on where security is situated within the overall org structure as to, as to whether that information is known. Um, we, we've seen you know, security is quite often listed under facilities, which is essentially maintenance. Uh, and they're, they're answering to a facility manager as opposed to yeah, uh, a risk manager. Uh, but in, in other organizations where security might be sitting alongside uh, occupational health and safety, or they might be answering to a chief risk officer, they do tend to be a little bit more aligned, but it's very hit and miss and there's no standard to it to be applied there. The, ne the next question would be, whose job it is to make sure that everyone knows the strategy? We're back to governance again. The job, of the, the job of the board is to set the direction and to line people up and inspire them to go after it. It's management's job to make sure that they've got everything they need to get there. But this isn't happening. 
certainly not in the security realm. Yeah, yeah, and I do think uh, as with as with most things, I mean, it has to be driven from above. Um, but a large part of that comes down to what is what is the culture we're setting, uh, and if we haven't got a a good risk culture or security culture uh, and, and even just a cohesive culture overall within the organization, then any communication of value or, or mission is, is going to be hard to come by. I think it's interesting that you know, if, we, if we're going to kind of delve into culture a little bit, you know, we talk about organizational culture and we talk about security culture, but very rarely do we talk about the culture of security. I mean, security as a department or security as a sector and there is an argument to suggest that security as a as both a sector and indeed many organizations it's toxic when you talk you know you you, you go into some of the places on the internet certainly on linkedin when you, you've got security practitioners come together you know everyone's a charlotte and everyone's a bullshitter nobody really knows what they're talking about that's a toxic place to be and i know security departments where you know they're eating their young um, and then we say, well, we're, we're going to put a security culture into the organization. I'm like, I hope it's not going to be your one. <laughs> your, <laughs> your culture sucks. <laughs> um, and some of that does come down from certain, you know, there are certain individuals and certain tier within the industry at the moment who are from that very strict command and control type background, um, which we know doesn't work anymore. Well, again, it's, a, it's an evolution of the whole function. Uh, I mean, there, there's so many, and, and there, certainly here in Australia, we, we do have a lot of um, security divisions that are, that are run by ex-police or ex-military personnel, and, and a lot of them do a fantastic job, but a lot of them also struggle to uh, acclimate to, to a corporate culture and not a, you know, a military or paramilitary culture. Uh, and that can change things and how they manage to get along with the rest of the, you know, their peers. Uh, if, you, if you land in a corporate organization after 20 years in a uniformed service and you take a comply or die approach, it is not going to fly. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a very harsh learning curve. And I, I think any, everyone who uh, has done that would agree. The ones who succeed and the, one who, the ones who fail will agree that it's uh, certainly not an easy transition. No, and it's, it, it's one of those challenges that if we talk about security practitioners and security risk practitioners, We've talked a little bit about the kind of the potential future. The next question I think needs to be, how, how do we carve our place in that? What do we need to do? Is the answer more certifications? I don't really think so. Uh, um, you know, as someone who has a bunch of them, um, I, I have an opinion on kind of the way that our industry is led and the way that we are the way we're developing ourselves for the, I don't think we're doing it for the needs of the sector or the needs of the organizations. We're doing it for the needs of the membership bodies right now. I agree. Uh, I think, uh, I think we've become certification heavy in, a, in an urge or a, almost a, a desperate struggle to uh, establish some sort of corporate credibility uh, and we may have gone too far. Well, I think so. I mean, and the other thing is nobody, nobody client side, I think, really understands what the hell they mean. I'll give you an example. I, mean, I, I applied for a job um, a while ago and uh, I get to the interview stage and they started asking me questions about you know, my, my experience. And I just pointed at all the letters on my CV and said, you don't get all these out of a cereal packet. I had to demonstrate I've done all this stuff for years in order to get this. Why are you asking me these questions? And it just demonstrated they didn't know what they were buying. Yeah. And again, as you said, it comes back to the education piece. Then we, we have to educate our clients. And there's part of that. Do we need to know more about security risk or 
do we need to develop ourselves beyond this? There's something that um, there's something called the T-shaped professional that I'm not sure not many people have come across. Are you familiar with it? No, I'm not. If we imagine um, a straight line, and in the middle of the, we're going to write the departments of the organisation along that straight line, and in the middle, for convenience factor, we'll have security. We land in security, and we begin. We we, we draw a couple of lines from the middle of you know the 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 horizontal and we say okay we're going to spend a couple of years in security and we, imagine we start to dig a well and, you know we, we start to get a wealth of experience potentially and then we think hey this security thing's pretty good we'll spend a bit more time in it so we spend a few more years we maybe do a degree or we do a certification and we dig a a deep robust well of knowledge and experience around this security thing the thing is none of the rest of the organization cares they're not coming to us to draw security water knowledge for them so what we need to do if we think about a t and so it's called the t-shaped professional we've got the upright which is our sector knowledge across the top we need to develop other skills influencing skills negotiation skills communication presentation the things that you could be the best security risk practitioner in the world but you are nothing if you can't communicate and negotiate and share that on a broader term with the organization in a way that the organization will benefit from. hundred percent agree. That's, that's something we're, we've been very strong on recently. And uh, part of our, our uh, graduate certificate in psychology of risk program is, is really about how do you influence decision makers uh, as an, as an expert and, and uh, how do you utilize those skills of influence to, to create a greater good for both you, for the decision maker and for the, for the you know, greater organization and community. Uh, but as you said, there's no point in being the world's best expert if no one wants to listen to you. Absolutely. And I think that um, there, there is an element almost, I sometimes joke about this, it's, it's almost being a white hat social engineer. Oh, 100%. You know the, 100%. <laughs> you know the trick. <laughs> there's, a lot of consult, there's a lot of consultants now that are, that are basically teaching con men strategies with good intentions. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's a case of, you know, if my mission is to protect an organization, I need a bigger toolbox. Um, and provided I'm ethically driven, I think that there is a, there is, we talk about social engineering, but we don't use it properly. We don't use it in a way that actually benefits our clients. You know, me knowing who Cesare Lombroso was, for example, no one's, no one's going to care about that. They care about the application of knowledge in their environment. And we've been selling, we've been selling security risk for so long on fear that that becomes the message. I still see people on LinkedIn and they're like, you know, get that dreaded pen test done. Call me today. They're not going to get any business out of that. We need to be more nuanced. We need to sell value, not fear. Yeah, and that's a, that's a great note to leave it on. Richard, it's been fantastic spending half an hour with you and, uh, and, and picking your brain about the, the future of this industry that we, we both have an affinity for. So uh, I, I truly appreciate it. If people want to know more about you or want to engage your services, where can they go to find you? Uh, I can be found at, uh, it's a horrible domain, so it's the securitydoctor.expert. Nice. That was, <laughs> that's, not, that's not bad. That's not bad. <laughs> yeah, I don't consider myself an expert, though, so hmm, yeah, there is that. Tom <laughs> <laughs> wasn't and, available, I say. <laughs> and, of course, you do share a lot of good material on LinkedIn, so uh, I encourage everyone, if you're, if you're not connected with Rich on LinkedIn, make sure you do that. Uh, it's, a, it's a good follow. Brilliant. Thank you so much, and thank you for your time.
Thank you to Dr. Richard Diston for his time and insights into the future of the security risk management industry. It was certainly a fun conversation and one I hope to continue at a later date. That's it for this episode of the Brazilians podcast. Make sure you check out everything we're up to at www.risk2solution.com. That's www.risk2solution.com. Until then, we will see you next time.